Well, I saw I saw a great quote today from a pastor friend on, on Facebook. Uh, I don't think you'll mind me mentioning him, Josh Robinson. He put on there, he said, rebuilding Christendom starts with your home. And he elaborates, he says, discipled families make discipled churches. Discipled churches make discipled city-states. Discipled city-states make discipled nations. If you can't disciple your family, you're not ready to disciple your church or your city or your nations. Start local and move outward. Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name is Lucas. This is Neil. And I'm Travis. We're Southern men, de-reconstructing the South. This is our Positive Eschatology Part 2. Um, the first one we released was a little bit before Christmas. And we, we focused on um, how to get the home together. And uh, Travis, what do, you, what do you think about doing a little recap about that? Uh, well, to recap, I'm going to kind of go back to uh, the fourth chapter of Malachi, it's it's only six verses, but it, it definitely recaps everything we talked about. Uh, for behold, a day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be like chaff, and that day is coming, will set them ablaze, says the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and frolic like calves from the stall. And you will crush the wicked underfoot, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances which I command him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will turn to the fathers, turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. So Malachi is essentially talking about the uh, how the priests dealt with their wives, and at the end he gives a promise saying that I'm going to turn the father's hearts back to the children. Uh, but before he turns the father's hearts back to his children, he first turns it to his wife and then to his children. And in the last episode we were discussing... Um, basically building the foundations of a, of a Christian family, how to um, retake the world, but first starting in your home. And um, I, in this one, we're going to expand it out to your community local or your community proper, I should say. And uh, yeah, I mean, how, how else are we going to establish the kingdom throughout all the worlds if we don't start small and go bigger? Right. So uh, in, any input, Neil? Oh, go ahead. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna open this second part up this, to to set a framework. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote um, one passage, and I want to reference another passage, uh, mostly because the the other passage is a lot of uh, proclamations that uh, were given. Um, it's a little repetitive, so I'll I'll, I'll be I'll be short and succinct with this one. Um, but it's Deuteronomy 27, 15 through 16, and then Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. 
Deuteronomy 27, 15 through 26, it is an outline of, it is a series of proclamations that the people of God were supposed to hear publicly and then respond in the affirmative. So, you know, I'll go through a few. Cursed is the man who takes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. And this goes on and on. Some of these commands, as you can see, with honoring your father and mother, it's reminiscent of um, Exodus, Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. And some of these are a little bit different, like moving your neighbor's landmark. Um, but these are things that God finds abominable. Um, some of the Levitical restrictions, or well, some of the Levitical demands, rather. Um, about you know, not sleeping with your with your mother, not sleeping with your sister, not sleeping with animals. These are in there as well. These are things that God called an abomination, and so the people are publicly responding, "Amen," to the curses being applied to people who do these things. Now, Deuteronomy twenty-eight one through fourteen is giving an outline of the blessings that God's going to give the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. But just as the commands of the Old, the Old Testament have this general equity um, that carries over into the New Covenant, so too do the promises have a general equity that carry over into the New Covenant. We're supposed to keep these laws. We're supposed to honor the law of God. And in honoring them within our home, God's going to bless us when we go outside of our home to do things. And this was the whole, the whole point of that first positive eschatology episode that we had. But now, <laughs> going further than that, the goal that we should have is to build community with people who affirm God's law. Now, I, I'm not going to say that we need to have somebody get up in, in, in public and proclaim the law of God like this, and then everybody has to say amen in this formal setting. That's not church. Uh, that should be done in church, obviously, but I'm talking about as a, a magistrate getting up and doing this. I, I'm not saying that we ought to do that. But what I am saying is that when the people of God honor God's law, and, you know, as he says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. He's going to bless you for doing what he's told you to do. And that works in the microcosm of your family. It works on the small scale of your family. But it also scales up onto these larger areas. <laughs> Your community, your church, um, you know, you could get your state. You know, there could be entire um, nation states of people who, who are honoring God and loving God who will be blessed by God for honoring and loving God and obeying him. 
And so this has temporal effects as, you know, God's giving physical temporal things to these people. He's given them fertility. He's given them, uh, you know, a great harvest. He's given them lots of cattle. He's given them land. Now, you know, we may or may not get these specific things promised to Israel. You know, this is what we mean by the general equity. We could get something else out of this. We could, we, God could bless us with other things. But this goes back to that passage of seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you, right? The, the blessings of God follow your obedience. And so you start in obedience in the small scale on your, in your family. When you, you purpose and you, you commit to God and you submit to God to honor him in your relationship with your wife and in your relationship with your children. And once you have a semblance of order there, then you go out to your community and you build communities or you renovate communities such that the people within that community will love and honor God with you. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the passage. Um, I think it was Christ that said it, uh, you know, go out into Jerusalem and Judea and then, all, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Um, if we apply that same principle to what we're talking about here, let's start with your family, then go to your community, then go to your county, then go to your state, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all these people that want to go to the far reaches corner of the world, but they, they still live in a demoralized ghetto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, these people are, are worried about uh, philanthropic uh, missions work, but they don't, they don't care about their neighbor. Like, you know, they, they live in meth central and um, they're more concerned about building new wells and in the Southern Sudan or something like that. When, you know, you have starving people literally in your own town. Um, how about we worry about our own people before we start shipping our money and our resources to other parts of the world? Yeah, I'm not saying that there's not a place for, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, but it, it kind of defeats the purpose whenever half your city's pagans and you're worried about what people across the seas, you know, across the oceans doing. Well, this yeah. would be like you trying to street preach, uh, but, you know, you were a failure in proselytizing your children. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the principle scales up. Here. I can't remember if he was referring strictly with, with Baptists or evangelical in general, but it's like this uh, preoccupation with missions where it's like, it's so prioritized, or at least it appears to be so prioritized. But in actuality, what it is, is that uh, evangelicals, they, they rest on their laurels thinking that, okay, you know, America is a somewhat Christian nation. And so uh, like, like Travis is saying, they, they throw money at missions and they pat themselves on the back for whatever scant missions work they're doing uh, on the other side of the world. But at the same time, they're not looking at what's going on at home. You know, it's like they don't, it, it's, it's, it's actually like really disingenuous, almost to the point that it seems, it seems, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. I mean, it's definitely fake to an extent. 
and I see this a lot in, in the circles I, I grew up in. Uh, a lot of churches, you know, they, they're, they're proud of their missions work. You know, they have special Sundays once a year where they, they put missions flag or uh, different nations flags up on the altar and they, and they applaud their efforts. But then you look at the county that they're in, my county specifically in the surrounding area, and it's like there's Baptist churches <laughs> literally on every block, it seems pretty pretty close in, in proximity to one another but there's no real local impact you know and it's it's like you know if we, we want to take the great commission seriously uh and we are <laughs> in america we are on the furthest reaches of, of the earth you know relative to uh, where jesus gave the great commission but yet here we are in our locale and it looks like our country, and especially here in the South, our people, it's we're almost in a post-Christian era at this point. You know, we have transplants moving in in droves because <clears throat> our local politicians prioritize uh, economic incentives over cultural incentives, and so we essentially sell out our our communities to developers. You know, you see farmland getting bought up. It's all around me right now in my county. 90 acres here, 60 acres there, 150 acres that here, they're they're being sold to developers who aren't even from here. They sell these ugly cookie cutter homes that don't even match the the they clash with the countryside and they look hideous. You know, across the street you have this beautiful farm, uh, people raising cattle, uh, you know, dairy farms and whatnot. But then you look at that and it's 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 so strange. You see this beautiful area. You see these beautiful churches, and then you look in the other direction. It's like it's it's suburbia on steroids, and you see the local the local politics going left, and and to me it's just it's it, it's like a sort of schizophrenia going on here. Uh, we we don't focus on the local as much as we should, and I'm gonna you know some people like to say well there's no such thing as local missions missions is going across the across the planet. It's like, well, did anybody pay attention to Paul's missionary journey? He didn't start, he didn't leave Israel and go straight to Hibernia or uh, or Iberia Peninsula in Spain. He, he, it was concentric. He worked his way out and he planted churches along the way. You know what I'm saying? And that's like, that's the model, right? We want our churches to be strong. We want uh, our people to disciple their children. We want husbands to shower their wives with scripture and the gospel to pre be preached at home, children converted, and we want to see this re reverberate throughout the community. And that's really the only way it's going to happen. Like it's to use a, a word that's got negative connotations, but it's true nonetheless. It's got to be organic. It's got to be intentional, but it's got to be organic. This whole idea that you can just, uh, it's almost like an elementary mindset. You know how little kids, they always want, like, they want the achievement, but they don't want to do the work. And it's like, okay, well, the Southern Baptist Convention has literal billions of dollars. I think 7 billion or 11 billion, something like that. And we spend a huge chunk of that on missions. But then you look at our country and you're like, well, what the heck, man? Like, you, you want the, you want the glory for, for missions, but like, you haven't actually done the work to get there. Like you, you pat yourself on the back for planting a church in rural India, but 
look look at rural North Carolina, look at rural Alabama, look at rural rural Georgia, Mississippi. I mean, it's it's embarrassing, really. You have unreached people in the Appalachians, for goodness sakes. But we're gonna we're gonna sit here and and beat people on the head for not going to going to the middle of Africa. Like to me, that's insane. It's asinine. Well, well it it, it kind of reminds me of um, that Charles Dickens uh, political or political cartoon that he drew, um, and it just typifies the entire Yankee mindset. Like everything we're talking about is the Yankee mindset infecting you know the Southern Baptist Convention or. Uh, the Southern mind for what missions is. And anyways, that political cartoon essentially showed a lady looking across to the far corners of Africa, you know, wanting to uh, do their telescopic missionary work. And meanwhile, those two poor children, you know, dirty, probably, you know, had to work in some type of factory or whatever. And um, the kids were saying, Oh, are we not black enough for you to care? Um, I mean, that's essentially what we're talking. I mean, we're wanting to go reach the pagans on the other side of the world, but we're not worried about the pagans that are here. We're not worried about the atheists that are here. We're instead focusing on something else because it looks grander and it, and it's a lot shinier and newer. And, you know, um, and, and I kind of admire it because it does have a sense and a feel of that, that frontier spirit. But what are you actually doing with that? Like it, it's, it's great to go out and conquer new territory, but, you know, there's no sense in retreating from your home to conquer new territory, right? Mm-hmm. This is why I admire Grace Community Church and <clears throat> what John MacArthur has done. I'm not a dispensationalist, but this is what's ironic about what they're doing. John MacArthur created the uh, oh, Grace to You. Uh, you know, he did tape recordings and radio shows, and, like, it exploded. And then they created what was called... Uh, the Masters, oh, the Masters Academy International, TMIA, I think, the Masters International Academy, where they're essentially planting seminaries. They're not just planting churches, but they're planting seminaries in other countries, teaching these people, hey, not only should you plant churches, but you yourselves should go out and plant churches, like in your own, in your own locales. and you know, despite my misgivings for dispensationalism and, and all of that, there are there the country, our country has a lot of churches that uh, are essentially part of that John MacArthur network. I guess you could say G3 is the unofficial denomination for John MacArthur churches because that's where Josh Bice, you know, they left the Southern Baptist Convention, they joined G3, and G3 used to be a little bit more uh, doctrinally. Um, uh, what's the word? Eclectic, I guess you could say, because you had churches that were like Sproul, R.C. Sproul. Uh, you had Presbyterians and stuff like that. But now it's become m- more of a safe haven for dispensationalists to associate with one another. But I admire what they're doing because you look around and they're, they're kind of a close-knit community. They don't want to have anything. They don't want to touch the Southern Baptist Convention. They don't want to have anything to do with it because of all the bad politics and the, the poor emphasis upon missions because they don't focus the southern baptist convention despite whatever north american mission board claims to be doing they're not transparent they waste a ton of money uh crew is a is a a joke Uh, you guys know what crew is right uh yeah campus of reform religious you know yeah i know what it is um of course two of their biggest advocates uh recently uh 
uh, deconstructed their faith and uh, went woke, yeah. and now they're going broke. That's got to tell you something. I mean, that's got to tell you something. Uh, and, and like I said, the lack of transparency uh, in both the IMB and in and in NAM, it's like it, it's it's almost like it's a, there's a facade, and it's starting to crumble uh, with this new conservative resurgence, which I don't think. I don't think this new conservative resurgence is uh, – I think they're ill-prepared. I think there's a lot of a bad doctrine, a lot of historical ignorance, and a lot of a lot of arrogance, really. I mean, Tom Buck was talking trash about the ACNA because Beth Moore uh, left to go to the ACNA, but it's like, well, here's the difference. She's a uh, – uh, what's it called? A catam- catechumen. Catechumen. So she has to go through this lengthy process to even be confirmed. So hopefully, Lord willing, she'll be put in her place by the leadership in the ACNA and won't become this celebrity figure like she was in the Southern Baptist Convention, where she was just given a platform and her and, and her church, her church should have been excommunicated from the SBC. If the SBC had any uh, balls to to it at all, then that would have been the case. The local association should have booted them out. I don't know where where she was at. But the local association should have excommunicated them. The state association should have uh, excommunicated them. And the SBC should have excommunicated them for giving her a platform and pushing this agenda that women should be ordained in the ministry. Same thing with Russ Moore and the ERLC. That The lack of transparency there and the fact that they're vying for overt liberal support or liberal politics. Like, you can't be a conservative Christian. I'm sorry. I don't I don't care what these guys at mere orthodoxy, and I'm name-dropping. I, I do not care. I do not care what... Luke Stamps and these other guys, Center for a Baptist Renewal, uh, this may not represent their views, but I know Luke Stamps is really big on this. Like, you can you can have liberal politics and support Democrats and, and be considered uh, orthodox in the faith. I'm like, your orthodoxy should outflow and overflow into all aspects of your life, and it doesn't if it doesn't affect your politics, then there's something terribly wrong. There's there's a there's a there's some some level of superficiality, and it's it's. That's that's where the tug of war is <clears throat> in the Southern Baptist Convention. You have uh, you have cla- you have ignorance in terms of classical theism. You have guys literally comparing. <laughs> they're, they're using comp- they're using the Trinity to to make a case for complementarianism. And Zach Garris makes this quite clear in Masculine Christianity, and I've made it clear over and over and over again. The only comparison that we're allowed to make, and the only one that's illustrated in Scripture, comparing the hierarchy of the sexes to the Godhead, is the church to Christ in Ephesians 5. That's it. You don't get to say that God the Father is, is, is like the husband to Jesus, who's his wife, and the Holy Spirit is like their child. That's, that's ridiculous. That's yet, heresy. Ha- it, it literally is. But now you've got guys like Owen Strachan and, and James White are pushing this, uh, this, this sort of subordinationism. And the reason they're pushing it so hard is because it's at the heart of the argument against the, uh, the liberalizing of the Southern Baptist Convention and greater evangelicalism. And it's asinine because it's not it's not orthodox, right? So so we have these two competing forces in Southern in the Southern Baptist Convention. You have one group of guys who who are very uh, arrogant about their adherence to orthodoxy, uh, but their politics are questionable, uh, very questionable. I mean well, you, you, sit there, you sit there and you sit there and talk about how bad it is, how bad black people have it in the Southern Baptist Convention and all the racial discrimination, and you downplay abortion. I mean, 
hello, yeah. the things that the things that are happening in this nation are judgment upon us because of of abortion. But then on the other end, you have these guys who who are ignorant. I mean, overtly and 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 deeply ignorant of the doctrines at the core of our faith that have been that have been uh, put into place since since Nicaea. And now they're they're quite like they're questioning it. You 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 question classical theism and orthodoxy, it because theology proper becomes a wax nose. And what you end up doing, the tail ends up wagging the dog because you want to make these you want to make these political changes, then you got to work backwards and try to inject your political your social views into the Trinity. Like that's ridiculous. So to me, this new conservative resurgence is kind of a it, it, it's not it's it's no it's nowhere near as effective as the initial conservative resurgence well i mean while we're while we're name dropping i want to go ahead and put a few good guys in here you know um uh, a couple of guys have been really good at pushing back on these narratives um you got uh josh summers um he's been really good about pushing about back against the doctrine of god stuff that's the Baptist, um, the Baptist broadcast. Is that that's the name of his? Yeah, he's the Baptist broadcast. Um, <clears throat> as far as you know, the big Eva, the FBC, a lot of the shenanigans going on with, you know, the missions board and the the scandals at churches and the scandals with, um, uh, docent, for instance. Um, you know, John Harris and Eddie Robles were spearheading that thing. Um, and you know, it's, that's a big deal, by the way, anybody who doesn't know about this, uh, essentially there were some, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of these, uh, uh, SBC pastors who are subbing out the prep work for their sermons onto a liberal think tank that will do mm -hmm. all of their work for them. And then, and then handcraft a sermon for them to provide before their uh, their their parishioners, their their people. Well, sometimes not even handcrafting a sermon for them. Sometimes literally copy and pasting a big name pastor's sermon and handing it to them. Well, it, it's that's even worse because some of those past were selling their sermons on mm -hmm. on docents uh you know in internal marketplace so it it's 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 more like you know they they're a, uh they're money changers essentially <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah. literally money changers i, I mean th think about it when, when you're subbing out you know subbing out to a liberal think tank this goes directly to the heart of your congregation like the people that sit up under you, the ones that God has placed that, you know, in, in the care of these pastors, they, that they are, you know, for one thing, they're going to be held account to how they let them wrong. Uh, so, so in Deuteronomy 27 that you referenced earlier, it says, do not lead a blind man astray. Okay. Me being a theonomist, um, you know, I'm the only good guy in this group. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I got but, you. Uh, but me being a theonomist, I'm I'm looking at this, and I think y'all would agree with me. But using the general equity of leading the blind man astray, we're, we we can also apply that 
to uh, to the average um, layperson within the pews of the church. So when, when a pastor is is you know getting his information, getting his sermons, getting his prep work, and all these other things from liberal think tanks, he is literally leading them astray because the the people that are in the pew are looking towards him for guidance and, and to to properly exegete, properly dissect the Word of God, and to give it into bite-sized morsels to the people in the congregation. Now, the people in the congregation should also do their own studying, but not all of them have uh, the, the time to actually sit down and parse out what, you know, whether or not the pastor's right or wrong, and some just take it at face value. So that right there is one of the curses that God gave Israel applied today. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And um, yeah, so, and, and this, this strikes at the home. I mean, the new president of the SBC, Ed Litton, he was specifically called out for plagiarism in his sermons. Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing happened. And not, just, and, and, not that just that, and not just that, he uses personal examples of what other pastors put into their sermons, anecdotes from their own lives. And him and his wife together got up in front of his church and they played this off as if this anecdote was their own anecdote. So it's not just plagiarism here. It's literally presenting a false account. It's literally presenting this account of a thing, this, this anecdote, as something that happened to them when it wasn't something that happened to them. They, they literally took this from somebody else. The whole sermon, with the anecdote, they got from somebody else. And then they passed it off as if it was their own. Now, he's straight up lying to his congregation when he does this. There's, there's, it doesn't matter how you, how you want to cut this, how you want to slice it. This is what he's doing. And by the way, this is how the whole docent thing even came up to begin with. Because people followed breadcrumbs, and they, they poked and prodded, and they, they were trying to find out what, what happened here. How did this happen? And <clears throat> this is the kind of thing that, that goes on, and nobody's held accountable for it. This is what the SBC is doing right now. Now, there's a lot of people out there who are listening who are going to say, well, I'm in the SBC, and there aren't any other associations. One of the big... One of the big elements today that we're dealing with is all of the institutions that we have had our entire lives are crumbling right before our eyes, it, apparently. Now, they've been crumbling for a while. The, the rot had set in a long time ago, and it's just really making itself manifest now because it wasn't cut out when it presented itself originally. But now it's eaten through almost all of our institutions. Mm -hmm. And this is not just our political institutions, although it's our political institution. It's not just our religious institutions, the SBC. Uh, the PCA is fighting its own fight right now. It's not just our um, 
economic institutions. People are losing their job over over you know things that you believe. You don't hold the right politics in certain areas. You could very well lose your job today. People yeah, are actually be, dealing with this. There should be immense pushback against that. This is it well, troubles me. Troubles well, well, me. It, like it it pres it presents an error. I, I just want to get this out because this is important. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'll I'll let you jump in after that. It's important because this creates a lot of a lot of um, it creates a lot of anxiety, and it creates this mindset of there's nothing we can do. Everything's falling apart. We're losing everything. There's no hope. And this is part of why the dispensationalists have been circling the wagons, right? Now, I, mm -hmm. I referenced a passage earlier, but I want to go back to the whole element of it because I think it's, it's, it's relevant here. You know, we've been, we've been introducing Scripture into this bit by bit. And commandments given to families that, you know, get your house in order— you know, even the dispensationalists are all about that. What we're talking about is going beyond that. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about creating Allowing. fraternities. We're Allowing talking about, to go about there. Right. And so the, the problem is that there's this wall of anxiety that we feel very much alone. We feel very much isolated. And in some ways we are. But the passage that I referenced earlier when I said, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This came from Matthew 6. Now, the end of Matthew 6 is Christ's sermon on anxiety, our concerns for the future. And he, I'm, you know, I'm going to read it. Therefore, I tell you, do not be ang ang anxious for your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is life, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value, or are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not as not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Focus on the day. Go one day at a time. You have a larger goal that you're aiming towards. You know the general path. Create a, a, a line to get there. You know, we talked about this in, <clears throat> in a couple of podcasts about, especially the Year Looking Forward podcast, about, you know, you, you set your budget for the year. We talked about setting a, a, a um, 
we said we talked about setting a budget or a or or a, a a milestone goal for certain virtues that you want to you want to build up. These are the kinds of things that you need to do on a larger scale, but do it with other people. Network with other people. You're not alone. There's other people out there. You can talk to them. And Christ will provide what you need because you are more valuable than the sparrow. You're more valuable than the lily of the field. He's going to give you everything that you need. You know, on that point about provision, I think we need to address one thing. I just see it in my area. You might see it in yours, uh, in, in y'all's area. This idea of member stealing and competition between local churches. And a lot of it has to do with provisions for the pastor. Because the, and this is what's so ironic about it, right? Because this get this this uh, this is part and parcel of what we're talking about. Is you have these pastors who are scared of losing their their livelihood, but yet at the same time, in a in schizophrenic manner, they hold to this negative eschatology where things are dwindling down, things are are going to get bad, things are going to get worse and worse and worse, but yet they want to cling to the pastorate as their um, as their single vocation, right? A lot of these guys don't want to be bivocational. They want the church to support them. So what do they do? They, they instead of being faithful to the word of God, <laughs> they pursue gimmicks, uh, you know, and, and they, they choose a demographic and they, and they go after, it's, it's, it's part of the secret sensitive uh, movement, really, that they're adopting, even though a lot of these guys say they're outspoken against it. They'll criticize Saddleback Church and, and uh, Rick Warren, but yet they're just as guilty. So you'll have, I'm not going to say the name of the church, but it's one of my aunt's church. Uh, it's my aunt's church. They, uh, they're really big on King James only is right. And they really, they really make it a point to only appeal to the older folks. Like they don't make it a point at all to appeal to the younger people. Uh, like they don't even care as long as they can get the older people sitting in the pews, uh, and, you know, and paying tithes. That's all, that's all that matters. And that's their gimmick. Well, then you got these other churches around here in my county where <clears throat> it's about, it's a show. Like who can put on the best show? Who's got the most programs? Who's got the best daycare? So mommy and daddy can, can sit there with their arms up for an hour and a half, uh, you know, crying in, in the, in the comfort of those, those sweet padded chairs, not pews while a bunch of emotional music is playing. And then the goofy pastor gets up there and preaches some, some superficial emotionalistic sermon and they, they really make it a point to not associate with each other these churches they don't want to because they're they're scared that if if one of their members sees something that's more appealing about another church they're just going to go to that church instead of sharing resources instead of saying hey you know what uh dunbar's numbers are a real thing we should probably work on keeping our churches small so we can maintain cohesion in our church in a sense of community but no what they want to do is build up these massive uh, institutions with three to four to five thousand members. Uh, the pastor buys a, a half million dollar home and has a car for each of his children, and and um, the members are none the wiser. They think that they're they think that the 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 building up of their institution of their little tiny kingdom that they have that's like a sign of their own piety. And their holiness like look look this is what i've done you know I, this is what my tithes go to i'm building up my church 
It's like, yeah, but do you know the guy who sits, uh, you know, two pews behind you every Sunday that you never talk to or shake his hand? Do you know that guy? No, you don't. Do you know the, do you know the pastor? Does you as a pastor at this church, do you know the pastor at the church two blocks over who's struggling? His, his son has cancer. He's a widower and his church is dwindling because, you know, you're stealing all his members by making a big giant show. And he's, and he's struggling because he's still stuck in the stupid bureaucratic uh, committee led polity that, you know, that a lot of Southern Baptists won't shed. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no cohesion, there's no community, there's no fellowship, and it's all reinforced by their negative eschatology. This is the way it's supposed to be. Everything's just supposed to dwindle down. So what they're doing is they're saying, I'm going to get me in mine while I'm here until I get my pension, until I save up enough money, I'm going to retire, and then I don't care what happens. And that's what a lot of them are doing. That's what a lot of them are doing. They're building well, they're a little tiny community. They're just fleecing the people of God. Huh? They're just fleecing the people of God. Yeah, exactly. It's a well, giant – it's a racket. Well, they're running it more like a business than they are an actual church. Uh, yeah, churches are supposed to be a church a, economics. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, when, when we start getting into the brass tacks of things, you know, anything that's you know committee led is by necessity egalitarian because more people have a voice versus the actual biblical elder led church. You know, like mm-hmm. Paul lays out for Timothy and Titus, mm-hmm. um, we, we, there's not a sense of hierarchy there. You know, uh, one, you know, we have to reestablish patriarchy in both spheres, both in the home sphere and in the um, and in the ecclesiastical sphere. You know, we need to we need to establish, you know, a, a sense of community, get away from this, you know, looking for the looking for the dollar, you know, um, and, and start 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 worrying about people's souls and not your pocketbook, damn it. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I guess this is a good segue in the practical ways in which to do this. And I, and I think, um, you know, to, to, to all the guys out there who are, because <clears throat> I know a lot of the younger guys have this sympathy towards libertarianism. To all the libertarians out there, you may not understand why I'm saying what I'm saying, because there's a... I know for me, it was it was just a very succinct argument, libertarianism was, and it made a lot of sense, and it was very easy to grasp and easy to talk about. But just hear what I'm saying for a moment. Libertarianism is not your friend. Mm-mm. And in this way, it's very highly subversive. When you think about life in economic terms, now, you know, some of the bigger guys can get in the, in the praxeology and, you know, it, that, that, has some, that has some problems of its own and has some merits. We can have that conversation. But most of the libertarians out there, they're not getting into Rothbard. They're not getting into Murray. They're not getting into Hoppe. They're, they're, they're reading people like Austin Peterson and they're reading people like Dinesh D'Souza. And, they're and reading David people Boaz. <laughs> yeah, and and the 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 highest guys, and this isn't a this isn't a talk down to anybody, by the way. I'm not speaking down to you. I'm just I'm just being frank. I'm being honest about the situation. You know, the, the highest guys that I've talked to that that are you know the, the the people out there who are just common libertarians, the highest guy that they've talked to, the the the, the, one with the highest intellectual tr- uh, uh, credentials has been Stefan Molyneux. Now, 
number one, you have to understand that all of these guys are pagans, almost exclusively, the people that you're listening to. They're not coming at this from the idea that they want, they want to honor God. They're trying to build a, a way of living life and a way of understanding reality that is based around economics and the free exchange of product. Now, what this gets into your mind and what it makes you think about is about economic exchange in almost every frame of life. And it doesn't teach you how to build community. And community is simply an, an attachment to this economic system that's it's good for you, but you don't need it because you're an individual who has rights and you own your own body and you don't need anybody else for that. You own yourself. This is how they talk. This is how they think. And it's permeated the way that you think about things. And this is exactly what got me away from libertarianism is because I started seeing this a couple of years back and I started fighting against it. And every time you fight against it, it chips a little bit more away from your libertarianism. Let me, let me, let me button this up real quick because it, I know this is turning into a rant, but libertarianism negatively affects you because it makes you think of people as atomized individuals. And you give lip service to the idea that these people, oh, they're part of this group, they're part of that group. But especially as a Southern, you know better. People aren't atomized like that. You're, you are in a community. You're part of a community. You have a people. And with these churches playing this economics game, we're just going to gimmick you. We're going to appeal to demographics, which is really what they're doing. Uh, uh, demographers should be tried in the court of law as sorcerers, by the way. That's a whole other thing. But I'm actually not even kidding about that. They should be. But when they're just appealing to demographics, when they're, when they're just trying to play these gimmicks and trying to get people in to, 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 to fleece them, you know, like Neil is saying, they're taking you away from community. You know, the churches of old they were a, a, a pastor who was dealing with his community. He was dealing with the people who lived next to one another, who talked to one another, who, who help each other mow their lawns, who grab each other's mail for them, who, who you know, you know, hey, man, let's, let's, let's go have a, let's go have, let's, let's eat dinner together tomorrow night. You know, they were doing that, and then they would meet at the church house on Sunday. So our, our, our churches should reflect where we live. They should reflect our community. They should reflect who we, who we live next to, who we, who we buy and we sell from, who we eat dinner with, who we allow around our kids in our, in our, in our, in our, in our home. And instead of that, you have people driving 20 minutes across, the, across the, the city to go to a church that appeals to their gimmick while somebody from that part of town is driving over to their part of town to go to a church that appeals to their gimmick. So the cross and town going past each other to go have communion with somebody who they don't even know, as Neil's saying, 
they don't live next to, they don't have any kind of true community with, when you should be talking to your neighbor. And, and libertarianism contributes to this because it, 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 it teaches you to think about things in terms of this buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell. And it's incredibly insidious that way. I've, I've, I've got a thing against it now since I've gotten out of it. So y'all apologize. I apologize for my little rant there. If you don't mind, just, just one interjecting point. I think it's more fundamental than, than even libertarianism. I think it's just it's what, it's what libertarianism is based on. Uh, is based on it's this hyper individualism like you said it's the atomism and that's that was thomas Sowell's criticism of libertarianism and initially when i heard his interview i don't remember who it was with i think it was just with one of the guys from uh, uh hoover is it hoover institute i think that's where he's at right or Acton. i think it's, it's hoover anyway it's hoover. it made a lot of people mad that like oh no he's misrepresenting libertarianism it's, we're not hyper individualists it's like well yeah, you are. I mean, it's all based on the state of nature theory that the most fundamental, uh, the most fundamental basis of liberty revolves around the individual, and it doesn't. And and liberty is not does not stand alone. With liberty comes responsibility. That has always been the historic understanding of liberty. You can't have liberty without responsibility, right? And so, we're not. Whenever we're born from our mother's womb, nature doesn't take us and just set us in a crib and say, "All right, little fella." You're going to stay here, and eventually your brain's going to develop, and then you're going to be a free individual that no one's ever been obligated to have to take care of. No, that's not how it works. You're born into a family. The family is the basis of civilization. And so you, you, when, you, when you downplay the role the family has as the basis of civilization, then you're essentially contributing to the downfall of civilization. And I don't, and, and it's not just libertarians. It, it, conservatives have bought into this mindset by and large. Conservatives, and, you know, it comes from classical liberalism ultimately, right? That's that the that the individual is the most important person. And I hate that Ayn Rand quote that the the uh, the individual is the most discriminated against minority. That's the dumbest thing in the world. The family is the most discriminated against group of anybody. At this point, at this point. In, in, in the world, in our era, it's the family. The family is most threatened. Everything, every political action that has been taken since, I don't know, since Civil War, I guess you could say, has been anti-family. I mean, feminism, uh, LGBT movement, transgenderism, all Marxism. Marx, well, yeah, especially Marxism and, and Grant, Marxism, Marxism, especially, yes, suffrage. All, all of this ha, has, the, the, the sites are pointed at the family. Abortion, the welfare state, the warfare state, all of this is pointing at the family. And what drives me nuts is you get, like, Dave Smith used to be my favorite person to listen to. Big time, he's still a big-time libertarian, but it's funny, like, he has a child, he has his first child, and his mindset changes uh, for the better. You know, he starts to realize, well, crap, you know, I'm doing this stuff for my daughter. I, I like, I'm not doing this for me anymore. I was like, yeah, that's the point, man. When you get married, you're thinking about your wife. When you have a child, it's, it's for you. It's for your family. It's for your, it's for your children and your, and your, and your spouse. Like that's, that's what builds society. That's the basis of the church. Yeah. Individuals in churches that aren't married, notwithstanding, because yes, celibacy is a rare gift. They exist. 
but we should be encouraging young people to get married. First of all, we need to be encouraging young people to mature, stop extending adolescence into their freaking twenties. This is ridiculous, man. Like thirties, yeah, in your thirties even. Uh, we're not encouraging people to get to get married younger. We're not encouraging people to pursue careers. We're encouraging girls to get themselves in hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and then they become non-prospects for men who are looking to marry and have children. You know, I, I love my wife, and I'm going to tell you what, I praise God every day that I didn't have that mindset because, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how God did this. Uh, you, know, you know, he works in mysterious ways, but, you know, her debt should have been a deterrent. She had a ton of college debt, but, you know, God provides, like you were saying, and we paid off that debt amazingly, right? We've been married seven years and we've paid off that debt. So all we have is a mortgage now and a car payment, which is like really small. My point is though, like society has has turned on the family to such an extent. It's this, we're not just becoming a post-Christian nation, we're becoming a post-family nation. And and you, you see it with, with public school. They're not your children, they're our children. That's that's literally the battle going on in public schools right now. Hillary Clinton said the village raises the children. What village? You? Stupid bureaucrats in the state house of North Carolina? Stupid bureaucrats in Washington, D.C.? Heck no. No, not that village. If any village is going to be raising my child, it's going to be the church. Well, like that's the their mindset. I like the they, idea of God. I love the idea of God fans, by the way. <laughs> they are coming at it. They are coming after your children and they have been. Yeah. Yeah. It's all been, it's it's a this hyper individualism. I wouldn't even call it hyper individualism. It's just individualism. It's just this idea that priority lies within the individual, and it's like no, it's it's the family. The family is the building block. It's the basis. It's the foundation of civilization. Get rid of the family. The natural family has has been revealed to us in natural in natural law, natural theology. Like you get rid of the family as it's meant to to be ontologically. You're going to destroy the world, and if you don't fight against that, you're contributing to your own demise. And that's where a lot of evangelicals are right now. They're so pessimistic that they're 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 fulfilling their own prophecies. It's it's this it's this self feeding cycle, or as the or as uh, Scott Horton calls it, the the uh, self the self eating ice cream cone. But he's talking about war. You know. <laughs> well, well, whenever you start to you know you start to get into um to the most most modern day um uh anthropology when we, we you know they're they're basically darwinists today everyone is a darwinist and even if you still believe in six day creation or some type of theistic creationism um they're still functionally functionally darwinist right and if if you if you're just matter in motion if you're just you know ugly bags and mostly water then it is all individualistic because there's no common bond between any other human, right? You know, no one, you know, there's, there's nothing teleologically connecting you to other people like a family. You're just individuals in a group trying to survive, but there's nothing there to hold you together. You know, when you're functionally Darwinist, you, you don't have a culture, you don't have a heritage, you don't have a people you are just trying to make sure that you make, you know, your genetics makes it to the next generation. And that all comes back to how you view humans as they actually are, you know, uh, whereas in a Christian worldview, we would see it 
um, more of, um, you know, something's got to connect everyone together, you know, whether, you know, first God created man, then he created the family, and then the, the family created nations or communities and then nations, but. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> that's kind of where I was, you know, why, why I'm specifically pointing out libertarianism here. Um, because he, even the left's got a got an idea of community. It's, it's very twisted and warped and terrible. And the neocons have an idea of nationalism, which is, you know, they're mostly talking about things like Yankees. But you know, the the, the thing that I see on the rise in the South, and I was you know partially in, inculcated into this, was libertarianism. And I, I see how it atomizes people, and I see how it just makes you think of yourself independently of everybody. And you're not independent of everybody. You are – you're actually a part of the people that you interact with because you influence them, and they influence you. Even if it's subtly, it's still there. You have influences, and you know that you do. You're not unaware of this. You are aware of this, and if you – Pay attention. You'll see this very, very easily. So the, the practical aspect of this, um, the reason why I brought this up is, you know, the first time we talked about changing how you view the family and how you want to interact with your family. Um, you want to change how you think about your life. Will change how you think about your children, and we're going to say this is you turning your hearts towards your wife and your children. Well, in this case, um, this would be you turning your heart to your community. So, if we added something on top of this to keep in line with the theme, is that your heart would be added to your community as well, and you want your community to be benefited by the things that you know to be true from the scriptures. And you're going to bring the scriptures to your community and try to bring conviction to the people of your community. And as more as you see other people in your community doing that thing, as you see them coming out and saying the thing that you're saying, you're getting it from the same source. As you see other people come out and they name sins and they and they apply the curses of God to things that are worthy of curses. Well, then you join hands with them and you help them and you you network with those people and you build things with those people and god will bless you for doing that he will apply blessings for you honoring his word both in your family and in your community well i mean it, it you know goes you know go into all the nations and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy ghost right when we go to the nations, we're not going to the president. We're going to the people of the nation. We're going to our own people to accomplish this will, you know, this work that that we've been ordained to do. And in order to win the nation, you must first win your people, right? So, so when Paul went out, you know, bringing you back to a little bit earlier in the conversation, when Paul went out, he did not speak strictly to the leaders. Instead, he spoke to members of the community, and then the people of that community brought their family in to the faith uh whenever you know he's talking about the jailer his household was baptized yeah 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 i know you presbyterians are probably thinking yeah he had babies in the household well 
we'll, we'll, we'll debate Sorry, that. Sorry, the text doesn't say that. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll debate whether or not he had infants in his household or not, but... I couldn't resist. Sorry, I had to take, <laughs> I had to take a shot. <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he went to his family, and then I would assume, the text doesn't say this, uh, but just some sanctified speculation here, I would assume that then his family went to their neighbors. His family went to their extended family because that's what you do when you are a new creature, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, but they also would have been, this also would have been a public baptism. Yeah. You know, dunking underwater, not sprinkling. <laughs> Submersion. Immersion. <laughs> Listen. But um, but I mean that 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 is how this all ties into it. You know, we we you know we're kind of beating up on what's wrong. But I mean, I think to take both of these passages that we quoted at the beginning of this in in context, um, you know, we we started hitting on the um. Oh, I'm reading your message. We we, we were hitting on the um, the curses. Like what what will what is going to curse the people? And then the next passage is, is, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, being careful to do his commandments, I command to you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, right? So talked about the shortcomings now, you know, because we're post-mill, let's talk about the blessings. Well, I, I, before we, we go too, too further, you know, when you get past verse 14, you know, verse 15 and following, is all the curses that God's going to bring. And it's the stuff that we've been talking about this whole time. Mm. Right. It is, you know, God didn't just say, Hey, I'm going to bless you. He says, Hey, I'm going to curse you. If you fail to do this. Now, what were some of the cursings? What are the things that you're going to see in our communities? Right. We're given over to foreigners. Our money doesn't spend. Our families are in wreck. Uh, your kid, your son turned gay. Yeah, you're, you're, you're unironically. Children, yeah, your 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 children are are essentially bastards because you're not a father. Um, you're defeated every time you go anywhere. Now these are self fulfilling prophecies, right? But these are part of the curses that God applied to Israel. Yeah. Direct implications. Not, yeah. yeah, for not following God's law. And doing what God said to do, and so the 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 way out, you know, we 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 pushed this in the last positive eschatology. The way out of this is to double down on the law of God and to follow God's law. Don't go out and you know finger wag at everybody in the street when you're not doing it yourself. Fix yourself first, but as you're fixing yourself, network with other people who are fixing themselves. Do the, do the work, do the legwork, and then as you, as you go out, you'll have success. And instead of the curses applying to you, the blessings are going to apply to you, right? So drop, it, you know, from the way that I'm, I'm approaching this, drop libertarianism if you have it. Drop liberalism if you have it. Stop being a neoconservative if you're a neoconservative. Um, I know we're speaking largely to guys in the, you know, Southern Nationalist camp here, but 
Yeah, so you, you have to build social capital to move forward. Um, and you, you're not going to be taken seriously. I'm not taken seriously as, as as much as I want to be taken seriously. Like, I mean, for, for some stuff, I'm still, um, I don't want to say a voice of authority, but I, I do have some capital there uh, so that I can speak to some issues. But I'm nowhere near where I want to be. But But I'm building that that you know that credit system if you will if we're if we're going to use um today's you know terminology you know i'm i'm depositing into my quote-unquote bank account in order to actually be a higher voice of authority than i am currently um now i'm not i'm not as well read as i want to be i'm not as not as well versed in a lot of a lot of subjects um that you two are are versed in or people listening to it but uh, i'm doing the legwork i'm trying to put in you know put my my work my thoughts into actions so that i'm not just sitting behind the microphone and and you know to be to be quite blunt but bitching about everything that's going on in the world that i don't like i'm actually trying to fix it and i think that you know if you're as long as you're trying to fix stuff then you know you're going in the right direction well, let's, let's look at our stations in life. I mean, look at the people we're around. We're blue-collar guys, all three of us. Well, to some extent. I mean, obviously, we're not like I'm not a I'm not a carpenter, but we're blue-collar technically, right? None of, none of us are white-collar, right? No. And so, so <clears throat> this is the thing that I'm seeing, and more and more people are starting to see it. Eric Kahn from Hardman Podcast, Michael Foster from It's Good to Be a Man. Uh, I'm sure Zach Garris has noticed, noticed this, <clears throat> but less and less men like actual men like masculine men go to church anymore or if they do they don't participate because everything has been so feminized and limp-wristed and and just effete like so with us like we need to encourage other men to encourage other men to go forward and encourage other men to just to be good fathers to be good husbands but to also be upstanding church members you know, why, why is, why <laughs> at our church, man, all of the older ladies whose husbands are still alive, who aren't shut-ins, don't come to church. They don't come to church. I've never even met their husbands, not once. And then there are older men that are on the rolls who will get angry if you, if a deacon calls them and tells them, hey, you know, you, you're, an, you're about to be an inactive member. We're about to take you off the rolls. They get all pissy and they don't come to church. But when you really dig down, well, a lot of men don't go to church. And I can't speak for the guys who are absent of mind, but a lot of people I know who don't go to church is because the church has become so sissified and emotionalistic and not – there are no biblical fundamentals. They don't appeal to the man's core being, right? It's either super erudite. Pe- preachers are going way over people's heads, and they make make blue-collar blue Joe Schmo feel stupid and inferior. <clears throat> or it goes to the other side of things where it's so – uh, hyper emotionalistic that it's just it's it's gay it's like you're going to a it's it's like sitting through a lifetime movie or something you know what i mean it's uncomfortable nobody no man wants to be around that but the women well, who are who are just like there there are these women who just they're so gratified by that environment they don't care and so they'll run roughshod over the effeminate men who are left standing well, and that's because they don't, you know, bringing it back to a point I made earlier, they don't have a proper ecclesiology. Not only do they have a have a bastardized church government s- 
you know, system where they don't have a patriarchal hierarchy in the church. It's an egalitarian model. But then, but then once you get to the, uh, to the worship, they're singing Jesus is my boyfriend songs and they're not singing actual hymns and Psalms. Look, Saul, the book of Psalms was literally the hymnal of the early church. Now go read through some of the Psalms and a lot of them are war songs. You know, mm-hmm. it's talking about bashing your enemy's teeth in. And well, flip, you know, what man doesn't want to sing those kind of songs? Well, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, there's actually a couple of them that talk about uh, glad is he who, who bashed the kids upon the, the, the infants upon the rocks. Yes. You know, talking about destroying their enemies. You know, that's yeah. uh-huh. kind of some heavy stuff there. <laughs> well, you saw that you saw that quote that I showed you from uh, Doug Wilson's book, Mother Kirk. Right. Remember uh-huh. that quote? I've probably mm-hmm. seen it to remind me. I'll have to, I'll have to post it in the chat, and we'll, we'll talk about it on another show. But it's, <laughs> it's it's pretty good. It has a lot to do with that passage. But uh, oh. but no, what, to to Travis's point real quick. Um, you know, we're we're supposed to be congregationalists, but this is the point I made a while back on Twitter, and I got some pushback from Presbyterians because they 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 automatically think that congregationalism is just unbiblical and it's the it's the is at the core of all of our problems, and it's not. The problem is you can't have congregationalism without patriarchalism in the household because it doesn't work. Because then you get husbands and wives voting against each other, children voting against their their parents uh, whenever there's a referendum in the church. And then you also have women usurping their husband's authority, going behind their back and asserting themselves in the administration of the church. You have pastors' wives doing this. You have deacons' wives doing this. You have, well, I would say you have elders' wives doing this, but most most other Baptist churches don't even have more than one elder, if they even call the pastor an elder at all. So, like Travis says, we have a poor ecclesiology. But even if we were, even if we were to somehow convince Southern Baptists to get back to true congregationalism, we'd still have the problem of feminism having an undue influence on the church. The pastor can't he can't step on toes because he's got to worry about his livelihood because uh, Mrs. You know June Smith over here her son's gay, right? And she's very sensitive to that, but the husband is very not sensitive to it. He hates the fact that his son's gay and he wants the preacher to give him advice on this. But little Jude, she gets Judy gets around with her friends and they start talking and they start influencing and those wives influence their husbands. And the next time that there's a select uh, a selection committee or any of these other nominating committees, they start to, you know, maybe we should just ask the pastor to step down. Maybe we should start looking for another pastor. That's what, that's what happens. The way I understand how congregational congregationalism used to work, it was understood the head of the household had the vote just like just like suffrage in america before before women got the right to vote it was always the vote was represent the family was represented by the head of the household which is the husband and that's the way it should have been that's the way it should have stayed in the churches but for whatever stupid reason the suffrage movement worked its way into the church so then no longer did the heads of household vote it was everybody in the household votes. So everybody gets to have an influence now. It's not deliberated by the father, between the father and the wife and the, and the kids. It's 
you know, different churches have different policies. I think our church says you can't vote unless you're over 18, which I think is kind of asinine. <clears throat> but that's neither here nor there. I think all members should have to go through uh, catechism before they get the right to vote in church. But that's that's just my opinion. But my point is, you can't have congregationalism. This is why Presbyterianism even struggles. The only the only one who's not struggling, well, they're struggling too, because now they have women bishops in Anglican church. But like Presbyterians, they suffer the same problem because even though women aren't ordained in the PCA. Their wives still have undue influence. The, and it's not just their wives. It's it's the it's the effeminate influence, right? Because you have you have gay people, literally gay people, <laughs> pushing an agenda in the church or in the PCA. And the Southern Baptist Convention, we already talked about Beth Moore, but that, that's that's what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. You have effeminate men, and, and I will say this, those who push CRT or who run cover for those who push CRT, or those who believe in its credibility to some extent and, and don't question uh, it's, it, how sinister it truly is, they're all effeminate in my book because, because you necessarily have to be against hierarchy to be pro-CRT. You, you it's, it's necessary to break down hierarchy. And what's the most threatening hierarchy in civilization? The patriarchy. Well, the family. Right, but patriarchy. But well, the family is patriarchal. Yeah, the family, the family is patriarchal by necessity. Exactly. Well, I would even go a step further that I don't think anyone should technically vote in church. Um, you know, we we might disagree with this, but the way my my church is set up is we are technically congregational, but we are elder led. Nobody gets a vote except for the elders, and all decisions have to be unanimous. Right. So, um, you know, we. Basically, basically, we're using this. Uh, That's how my churches way. run too. Yeah, basically, it's the same system that we had with senators uh, before. You know, before they went gay, and now people elect a state senator. We just, um, you know, they they are representing us, and if we don't like them, then or like the decision that they're making, then we pull them aside. Um, do you vote? Do you vote for elders, or do your elders vote for elders? Our elders vote for elders. That's more yeah, of a Presbyterian model. That's not very. Uh, that's not congregational. <laughs> well, well, elders, we're, we're, elders we're are elected by the. <laughs> in, in my church, elders are elected by the people, and then the the elders vote them in. So it's it's kind of a a two way deal there. So I can I can uh, the historic model, as I always understood it. And I could be wrong. I might have to pull out a book on this, but. This sort of model, as I understand it, for Baptists has always been, you know, the church doesn't have a referendum on every single issue. It's they vote for elders and deacons. Deacons serve the church. They're, they're to be seen, not heard. They're not to have authority, contrary to what most Southern Baptists think, where they treat deacons like elders. The elders are the ones who have authority. Uh, and so what happens is the church will, uh, the elders will select People that they think would be a good elder, you know, the first requirement is that a person would would uh, desire it anyway in the first place. So the elder, the elders would select candidates, and then the church would vote on those candidates. And that way, if there's any any, any unresolved issues between a, a member with one of the candidates, unrepentant sin, or an issue that no one knows about, 
these things can be hashed out in the congregation. They can reconvene and vote on the elder. Once those elders are established, they have rule until or unless until the next uh, annual church committee meeting or until or unless there's an emergency uh, due to uh, disciplinary reasons. Right. Following the, the, the model in Matthew. Right. So <clears throat> that's how, that's how I've always understood uh, congregationalism for, for Baptist polity. Now, there are some, I think, where uh, in history, not now, but I think there are some in history where <laughs> for every each and every little decision ever needs to be made, they'd hold a referendum. That's where you get committees from. So it's like, well, instead of holding these referendums all the time, we should just have committees who make the executive decisions for these different areas of the church, which I hate. I hate committees. There should be no committees. They should only be elders. Full stop. I'll have you know I'm on the grass cutting committee and I resemble <laughs> I don't think there should be I don't think there shouldn't be committees. I, I don't think that committees should have a I don't think committees should rule in any aspect though. No, because you know like, it essentially becomes what the House of Representatives is today, where you just have all these committees with with these, you know, bozos making decisions behind closed doors and then exactly. you know, I mean it it's it's literally I mean, if we're looking at it as a form of government, because it is, it is what we have in Washington D.C. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, only the so, elder. I think elders should have the elders should have final say. At the end of the day, that's that's what I believe. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're on the same page. Uh, well, you know, just some closing thoughts for to end this is, um, for you know, first love your family, establish patriarchy within your family. Then take your patriarch into your community. Your your community should be your local church first and foremost. Uh, we touched on earlier that you know we need to look at our community, look at our church, and see who to do business with and who not to do business with. Uh, we need to start thinking um, in some aspects. Now, don't take this out of context, but in some aspects, we need to start thinking like the the Hasidic Jews in New York do where they only do business with their people and they enrich their own communities. Now they'll still take their money, you know, get, take money from the outside world and bring it into their community, but they're, they're only spending money within the people that are, that, that are, you know, in, in communion with them, right. That they're only going to the AC repair guy that is in their neighborhood. They're only going to the carpenter in their neighborhood. And I think we as Christians should strive to do that you know, as much as we possibly can. It's not always possible. You know, you might not have someone that owns a gas station within your, within your, you know, your local church, but anything possible that you can put money back into your people, do that, enrich your people, do not enrich Babylon. And um, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't really have any earth-shattering closing thoughts. I thought this was a good discussion, better than what we were doing last night before God struck us down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I think we should really, uh, for me, uh, my my biggest issue is with um, leading blind men astray. And I think a lot of our smallest churches, which makes up the small churches are what make up the Southern Baptist Convention in the South uh, geographically. And I think they are blind to a lot of what's going on out there. They don't pay attention. They don't, they don't hear the stuff to the grapevine. All these preachers and their members, they're not on social media. They don't live on social media and they're being led astray. 
and, and before you know it, <clears throat> they're going to be associated with some of the worst things to happen in, in a denomination, unless unless we reverse course. And and if they are led astray, then we should brace ourselves for for curses. And uh, that's something to pray about. I don't. I don't. I hope and pray SBC splits in a in a beneficial way for the faithful. Yeah, from my end, um, <clears throat> you know, we're as as we are part of God's covenant as men, we are prophet kings and priests of our homes. And anything we do out in the community as a as a whole should be extensions of those offices that we fulfill in our homes. If you see a lack in your community, go try to fill it. Go try to network with people who are trying to fulfill other tasks that need to be fulfilled and try to see if you can do that in cooperation with one another so that you can make your community better. I think trying to keep wealth, trying to keep, um, trying to keep things within the, in the community is a good thing. Think local, act local, buy local, sell local, etc. Have your family be a, you know, if we're going to get into economics, have your family be a, an engine for creativity. Create things of value. And I'm not talking about trinkets and, you know, WWJD bracelets that made out of beads. You know, go, go create something of value. Teach your kids a trade. And then go start a business and start applying that trade in your community. And using that trade as a way to preach the gospel to the people in your community. And if they already know the gospel and they're going to a terrible church, y'all network together and find a church that y'all can go to together. Y'all can be neighbors and you could be, you know, part of the same church. Uh, spend time with them. Go, go, you know, have some drinks and dinner with them every once in a while. You know, be part of their life as you you're right next to them. I think these are the wider things that we can be doing. And those are all extensions of you being a prophet, king, and priest of your own home. And it's just scaled up into your community. And do all these things with the knowledge that God's going to bless you, even if you don't obtain ultimate victory in your lifetime. That's not the point. The point is you're honoring God first and foremost. You're going out into your community. And you're trying to have your community honor God first and foremost. And all the things, you know, this is this is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You're going out, you're trying to make make disciples. You're trying to preach the word. You're trying to live the word before other people. And as you do that, God will give you victory in, in things that you do. He will bless you as you go do these things and as you honor him. And when your community circles around the gospel as this end that we desire, God will start blessing your community as a whole, and he's going to give to you. He promised that he will. Don't be anxious for what you have. Or don't be anxious for what you need. Go and do, and do in the understanding that God loves you more than he loves the bird of the field and more than he loves the lily of the field, and he's going to provide for you. Hey y'all, thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. 
If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at southernraisedbluegrass.com. God bless y'all. Steve.